Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Uh, welcome back to Gov Actually. Uh, happy summer edition. Um, a lot's been going on. So many different issues to discuss uh, that are kind of current and relevant. But I think we we can't we can't uh, have a a conversation right now that doesn't really recognize the fact that our our nation is once again facing a set of issues that relate directly back to. Uh, uh, government management, government regulation, and what the role of the federal government is. And I'm talking about the recent spate of uh, mass shootings that we've had in the United States. And while Gov actually tries to avoid, uh, actively avoids politics and personalities, it doesn't avoid policy. And uh, I think that we should talk a little bit about how you set policy in the context of a very, very complicated and difficult issue like this? Yeah, I, I, I think it would be weird uh, to, to record a podcast this week and not, you know, not at least talk about uh, what's going on. Um, and obviously, you know, in, in, in my private life, I, I, I watch and I, and I mourn and I, um, I, th- I just think about how horrible um, the situation is when there's a when there's a mass shooting, but then in in our professional lives, I think it's it's an amazing opportunity that that we have spent our career working in government, and that the government does always come back to the question in terms of what role should it play, or what or what role should it not play in dealing with with an issue like this, and so I think we should delve into. Uh, into that question in terms of, and not not choose sides, uh, because that's not what this podcast does, but to delve into um, how the issue plays out um, in, you know, in the policy process. And what's, uh, what's particularly interesting to me is that I, right before I went back into the federal government, I was working as the city administrator in Washington, D.C., when we brought the Heller case it was actually Heller versus Washington, D.C. Tell me more about that. Well, the Heller case was the first time the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court actually took a look at the Second Amendment and asked uh, and tried to answer the question about what were the rights enumerated by the Second Amendment for American citizens? What, what was their ability in terms of what, how, would you, how would you define what that a weirdly written amendment actually says. And what did what did the Supreme Court decide? The Supreme Court decided that that there was a individual and personal right to um, to have guns, and that the you know the rules that the District of Columbia had around the possession of handguns was in fact abridging that right. And so they said that the the District of Columbia couldn't have a overall ban on handguns. I think you know. I think when I think about um, our rights under the Constitution, I mean, one of the things you learn early on is that your rights are under the Constitution aren't, uh, you know, one hundred percent in all cases, right? So, for example, the classic free speech. 
<clears throat> we have the right to free speech, but we don't have the right to scream fire in a crowded movie theater. That's kind of like the classic one that is brought up, I think, in civics classes and in law schools around explaining that, um, that your rights under the Constitution are not complete. They, have, they can be abridged in certain circumstances. <clears throat> and so I think really this debate pivots on you know, this, this Second Amendment, which creates this right to bear arms. Really the debate centers on can it be abridged in circumstances and should it? Because the free speech abridgment with respect to not being able to yell fire in a crowded theater is about public safety and putting people in harm. And so you can't have carry out a constitutional right if you're going to put people in harm. And so I think really this centers on this kind of gray area question of are there limits that you can place on a Second Amendment right, on a Second Amendment right, or that you should place on it? I guess you can. I guess the courts could always decide that. I guess the question comes down, what are the policy tensions that associate with that? And I, and I think that was the case. Now, again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, and I don't think you are either, although you're many things. Um, so I'm sure every lawyer who's listening is wincing and you know yelling at their at their uh, their, their car speakers right now. But um, but I think that was part of the whole Heller decision was that the District of Columbia, as its own entity, had determined what people could or couldn't have, and so it was viewed as some form of abridgment and sent it back to them and said, well, you you have to come up with a different set of rules. Now it didn't say that there couldn't be. There is no circumstance by which the government could regulate um, gun ownership, or else you can't place limits on it. And and even you know this administration put a limit on bump stocks, and they did right. that through regulation. So there are limits. The question then is, what are the limits then, and, and what are the processes for for placing those limits, and then what will be the process for challenging whatever comes out of that? Yeah, and it seems to me like there's, you know, there's a lot of different, I think there's some gray area and some confusion potentially around, for example, what can the president do or the executive branch do versus what needs to be uh, enacted by, in Congress. You know, so right now is this, and we're, when we're at this moment in time in the wake of two mass shootings last week, um, you know, there's all kinds of discussion. And so there's, you know, they're interviewing Mitch McConnell on the news saying, you know, are you going to reconvene the Senate and come back and, and take up legislation that the House passed that had that placed gun control limits? But you also have presidential candidates like Kamala Harris talking about what she would do on her first day of office through executive order to also, um, uh, in, the, in the interest, I think, of public safety, place limits on, on gun rights. And so I think one of the first things that you probably need to sort through here, which there probably is not clarity on, and this is kind of an ongoing issue that's, that's been in place for a long time, is what can you actually do and enforce through, through executive order versus what needs to go through Congress? And one of the, one of the issues that has uh, repeatedly come up in the discussion about uh, regulation of guns and, 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 and gun control in general is this question about what is the actual science of what works and what doesn't work, whether um, you know, there are big questions about the public health, uh, you know, the level of kind of public health issues associated with uh, 
guns in households. There's a, lo a lot of research that isn't being done because there are actual congressional limits on, on the questions even being asked. Yeah. I mean, so, so think about like gun safety in the House. Let's, mm -hmm. let's get away from, uh, from, from let's, let's talk later about guns in the hands of people that are mentally ill and, and the discussion that's going on there right now. But, yeah, just the general public health nature of the presence of, of yeah, guns. And yeah. that, like actual research on the effects of certain, um, certain drugs like marijuana has not been studied because there's an actual congressional prohibition of spending funds on that. Yeah, but let's, let's look at some analogies. For example, mm -hmm. if there's a street corner um, that doesn't have a traffic light, and after a certain period of time, there's a number of accidents on that street corner. Eventually, you know, through either advocacy from the local community or um, oversight and action by the local government, they may decide to put a traffic light in there, which, you know, has the impact of regulating traffic through that intersection in the, in, in the interest of safety. I actually know a little bit about that yeah, from running the, the, <laughs> the Department of Transportation. There's actually a federally developed manual uniform traffic control devices yeah. that is developed actually by a group of state transportation directors. So it's the states get together, develop the regulations that are then adopted at the national level and then used by states and localities for making a determination oh, about okay. when they apply that regulation. And the reason why they do that is because if something bad happens at that intersection, they can at least say, well, we've all adopted the same rules. It's a way of limiting, limiting liability to the jurisdictions. Okay. Side note, when I was a little kid, yeah. I thought for some reason that the way traffic lights worked was there was some person behind the scenes in some master control room deciding when to turn lights red, yellow, and green. And that's the job I wanted when I grew right. up. So I was disappointed at some point to find out that there is no such job. There's a version of that job, oh, but there it's is? not nearly as cool as the one that you're okay. describing. The, okay. the guy with lots and lots of switches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there are people who actually program that, but that's yeah. a whole other. Okay. So, but let me bring the analogy back up. So, or so let's say there's a series of acts, gun, gun accidents in the home where. Uh, a child is gaining access to a to a gun that's kept in the home, and and accidentally firing it, and, and and someone gets killed or injured. Similar to the like, there's there's too many accidents at this intersection, so we need to do something, right? And so, imagine a, a requirement now that said, okay, from now on, for guns in the house, they have to be. Um, locked away. I don't know how you'd enforce that, but one thing that you could enforce is with today's technology, imagine that all guns had to have like a, uh, a four-digit code that you had to, you know, kind of type in or, or circle in in order for the gun to actually activate. New Jersey did that. Did they? New Jersey passed a law that said upon the time that a electronically controlled gun becomes readily commercially available, yeah. That will be the only gun allowable for resale in New Jersey. That's okay, so there you go. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I would like I would invite you to Google to see what happened. Oh, what happened? Oh, it 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 got very ugly for a gun seller in Maryland who decided he was going to be the person who imported a 
I think it was a German-made gun that actually met the New Jersey test. Oh, because that would trigger the requirement across the state. Exactly. It would have triggered it. So he, on the eve of opening his doors to selling the gun, he shut it all down. Yeah. Because he got a lot of pressure. Yeah. See, this is where the debate gets really interesting because what are the types of safety regulations that you can put in place that might kind of bridge the gap between you know, gun control advocates and those that are for a more you know, uh, free and open use of guns, not open use of guns, but, you know, but no regulations <laughs> on guns. Okay. I mean, there's, there's this kind of, there, there appears to, right now we're at a point in the country where there's no bargaining zone here to come up with, a, or at least we haven't been able to achieve one, even after other mass shootings like like Newtown and Sandy, you know, Sandy Hook and, and most recently uh, Stoneman Douglas the, School. The interesting thing is the worse the condition has gotten that would actually create the incentive for uh, some kind of regulation, the harder it's gotten, the, the harder the two sides of the issue have gotten and unwilling to actually find that middle ground for regulation. It almost seems like the the, the impetus for making a change has never been stronger, and the willingness to make a change has never been weaker. So what's the, so let's, what's the case on the, on, the, on the gun rights side? That's the word I was looking for before. Gun rights versus gun control advocates. I, I think the case is a, is a pretty straightforward one. Read the, read the language of the Constitution, and the argument was, and I was there for the uh, case at the Supreme Court, and I heard in, Antonin Scalia, actually. You were there? I was there. I cool. actually went there. Um, as with the police chief. The ironic thing was the police chief, you could argue, was the singular representative of our well-regulated militia, right? Yeah. The, the city's well-regulated militia, you could argue, was the, the District of Columbia Police Force. She had to turn in her gun upon walking into the Supreme Court. So I thought, wow, we've, already, you know, we've won this case because even yeah. the Supreme Court recognizes that you know, um, a handgun, even in the hands of the chief of police, is unsafe in the Supreme Court. Um, apparently, that's okay for the Supreme Court to make that regulation. But this came up. This, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there, there was some degree of publicity and controversy over the fact that I think at the Republican National Convention, right, um, in 2016, it was it was made it was publicized that there was a no guns allowed. Uh, in the in the arena, and the argument would be, well, that's just that's just common sense gun regulation. The problem then is the concern that once you start that, and this I would argue is to some extent the argument of some gun rights folks is the minute you start that, the minute you give an inch, that inch becomes a foot, that foot becomes right. It's the camel's nose under the tent. It's it the becomes a meter, slope. and then yeah. the next thing you know, you got the metric system. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that I mean, uh, to me, that is my understanding of of the concern from the gun rights side of this equation is that once you start impinging in any way, even in the uh, even even with a sound case to be made around safety, that 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 is counterbalanced by the risk that that leads to a momentum to do further infringements on the right. And that's really what it, what it comes down and, to. And then some go even further and say that the reason why the, the founders put that in the Constitution was so that people preserved the right to rise up against 
a um, government that wasn't uh, wasn't representing them anymore. There is this, you know, you go deep into it, and it's like, well, no, we want to preserve the right to to revolt against the king. Yeah, but I feel like right now it seems, uh, at least this week and in this moment that we're taping this, there's uh, there seems to be kind of a, an openness to at least have a debate and not summar- summarily reject some some ideas that have emerged and that some states have enacted. For example, this uh, this red flag law. Are you familiar with this? Yes. Okay. So the red flag law is that um, it is, it enables a process to undertake where the police or a family member uh, of someone in possession of a gun who they believe is a danger to themselves or others can seek from a court of law, a judge, a temporary stay on the ability of that person to maintain a gun and they can pull the gun away for a certain period of time. Then the gun automatically goes back to that individual unless the judge uh, continues the, uh, the, the withholding of the gun for a certain period of time. And there, I've heard from both Republicans and Democrats support for this type of, of, of safety provision. But that's, that's, a, that's a development that's coming out of, frankly, the fact that it's clear that uh, the current regime, if not directly contributing to this violence, is certainly not preventing it. The, the reason why certain gun rights advocates have opposed the red flag laws is because it does involve the government literally coming to your house and saying, give me your gun. Yeah. And that at, at its fundamental, at the fundamental level is what the gun rights advocates are worried about. Yeah. But in this, but in the red flag law, it's, it's, it's a little bit different than that from the standpoint of, so imagine the scene, knock, 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 give me your gun. And they say, wait, I know my rights. You know, I, I have due process before. It would, it would, it's the same thing as I'm coming to search your house. I'm coming to take you away and, and, and confine you. I'm coming to do all these different things. I'm going to uh, build a road through your front lawn. Anytime the government knocks on your door and impacts your rights, the usually typical answer is, wait, I know my rights. I have due process. So in the red flag law, it's like I'm coming to get your gun because someone has alleged, either law enforcement or a family member, that you are a potential danger to yourself or others, that person's response is, wait a minute, I know my rights, we need to go through due process. Now you're saying that's still going through, still some government employee, the judge, exactly. making the decision. And the, the argument, and again, I don't mean to characterize these positions as all gun rights advocates, but the argument that has been made, could be made, and seems to have you know, won the day as as described by the amounts of limitations on putting limitations on this kind of um, uh, on on this kind of activity has been that there's something unique and special about the right of gun ownership that suggests that any any government action to r- limit or frankly uh, prevent the ownership of a gun. Is is anathema to that that see, founding I, principle. See, I think that it might be a little different than that, which will play right into the theme of the Gov Actually podcast, actually, which is maybe there's maybe some people that are just against any impingement, but I think this is just intu- intuitive or thinking about the policy debate that someone who's concerned about a red flag law may be the the fact that 
it can't be implemented effectively or it wouldn't be implemented effectively. So, so I'm imagining an individual who says, look, I get it. I, I see the benefit of preventing someone who's mentally ill or who is a danger to themselves from, from maintaining possession of a gun. However, I don't trust that the process will play out in a way that we won't pull guns from people where it's not where they're really not a harm to themselves or others. So what's to prevent a, 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 an advocate judge who really is more of a gun control person from issuing a bunch of these and lowering the bar very low and it being really easy to, to, to make the case? What's interesting and is that's an implementation there issue. There was a regulation that said for the purposes of the the um, the the check, you know, the you have to go through a, a a very fast turnaround check. They were going to actually allow access to the Social Security Administration's list of names of people who actually are identified as as being on disability or being well, yes, as having clinically defined um, a mental health issue that creates a disability. So. Yeah. And that's a, it's an interesting solution because then that brings up data privacy and the notion of government agencies sharing information between each other about your, uh, really a health record. And so that raises, so again, it comes back to- But, but that was then disapproved by the, by the administration early on when they yeah. came in and it was sent back and the, yeah. both houses of Congress voted in favor of disapproval, which means that in order for that regulation to be offered again, it actually has to be voted on by both houses of Congress. It has to be treated essentially like a law. Yeah, well this is really interesting because I would say that on any, on, on this type of issue, you have those that are likely gonna hold the position like under no circumstances shall you ever impinge my rights. Mm -hmm. But there'll be those that'll, that'll say, you, I'm, I understand the policy objective, but I don't trust that it can be implemented effectively. I think there's an analogy here with the death penalty. Right, there are some that would be just morally always against capital punishment in all circumstances. But I've read and seen others advocate the position that I, I could be for putting someone to death for committing a heinous crime, but because the government can't carry out that penalty in an infallible way, I'm not willing to support it because of the risk and the reality of an innocent person potentially being put to death. And that risk is enough for me not to support the death penalty. And in, the, and in this gun, this red flag law, it's someone saying potentially, I see the benefit. And if we could implement a perfect system where all people that were truly um, capable uh, or at risk of hurting someone, that we could take their gun away. But I don't trust that the process could be carried out in, infallibly. Um, and I think that's part of that, you know, that, so you segment the different positions. And I, w I would imagine that if we could demonstrate, if the government could demonstrate a higher probability of success and mitigate the risk of false positives with this, there might be even a high, I think there's already a high percentage of people that, that like the red flag law and think it should be implemented. I think it'd be raised even higher if there could be a debate and dialogue around how the government can take steps to make sure that it's done in as a mistake-free way as possible. Well, um, when we come back, I'm going to ask you if you have any ideas about how that could be done. There's an idea that I heard about probably close to 30 years ago that I still think is an interesting way to deal with it. So I'd like to talk about that. All right, let's do it. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. 
Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back, and uh, you went off and and thought long and hard about the assignment that uh, that you know an unnamed administration is going to give you. You're you're the deputy director of OMB, so as usual, that that you know the DDM, the deputy director of management. So usually, any any problem that no one else can solve, they give to the DDM. So right. the president calls you into her office and or his. <laughs> and says their office and says, uh, uh, what are we gonna do about this uh, gun thing? So give, me, give me some ideas. Well, I mean, I think you want, if you're going back to the earlier conversation we have, I mean, it's like the red flag law. Can, you know, how can we demonstrate to the American public that this thing can be implemented with super low error rate? What, what are the things that we need to do? And I think, I think there are things you can do, like for, for example, you know, issue guidance regulations that provide clarity in terms of what the thresholds are for a judge to make a determination that somebody is capable. What is the what's the evidence that needs to be put forward? What is the the elements of due process that the individual has? Um, right now, it just feels like you know a little amorphous. Like, oh, if 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 a parent or a brother or a neighbor says this person's a danger, is that enough for the judge? Yep, take the gun away. Um, and, um, and, and that, and by the way, that might be the right policy call. I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's not. But in the debate um, and in the negotiation on whether and how much to, inf you know, to how quickly we can get something like this passed and agreed upon, you know, I would imagine that there would be, from the, from the gun rights advocates, a hope that there would be kind of a robustness to the, to the instructions that the due process is operating under to make sure that this is really a situation that warrants pulling the gun away from someone. Um, I think that it's, I, I actually think it's, it, I would like us to have a constitutional scholar on Gov actually at some point so we can talk about how the constitution is structured because ultimately it's the instruction set for the Congress, the executive, and the Supreme Court, and then everything that the, the government does is has its root and authorization in that document. So yeah. this is what, as a society, we've decided to set up as our as our government to support and direct and evolve this you know ever growing population of people we have here in the United States of America. But one of the underlying principles I think is inherent in the Constitution, again, this is why I'd love to have a constitutional scholar here, is not just the rights that it imbues, but also the responsibilities it, it uh, implies. And I'm wondering if the solution to the gun issue is not simply an argument about whether you have a right to something or no right to something, or a right to deny you a right or a right to have an inviolable right, but I'm wondering if what's missing from the conversation is a sense of responsibility that comes with accessing the right. And that responsibility is inherent in almost any other, um, if not right, privilege that people have in society. So 
Like, I, a, like a driver's license. Uh, yeah, the yeah. driver's license. And the argument they say is, well, actually, the driver's license is a privilege. It's not a right. There's nowhere in the Constitution where they say you have the right to drive. Yeah. Um, but the right to home ownership, you, one would argue I have the right to private property. The Fifth Amendment says if the government's going to take my property, they have to duly compensate me and give me a fair process. So therefore, yeah. back, working backwards, I have a right to it. Well, as a property owner, I know I have a huge amount of responsibility that comes with that. And the best um, form of that responsibility is, the, is I need to look, if I want to hammer something to the side of my house, I actually have to get a permit. And because I'm in a historic district, I can't, in many cases, hammer things to the side well, of my this, house. But this is the point. Like, this is, I think this is getting to the rub of, 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 of one of the barriers to, to, to gun control measures that could satisfy both sides of the issue, which is like someone's thinking, well, how long does it take to get a permit? The, the government's broken. The bureaucracy's yeah. broken, right? And so if you're going to implement... So, I mean, just today, I think, I think I heard or saw that the president tweeted that something along the lines of, like, something along the lines of, I think everyone can agree that we want to prevent, you know, sick, deranged, mentally ill people from getting guns. And so then the question then becomes, okay, how? Right. And so I think your permit question is a great, great question because in order to convince more people, in order to implement these types of uh, safety regulations that will prevent that, people have to believe that they'll actually be implemented in, in an effective way and not and the system won't be broken. Like, oh, I now need a permit to go get a gun or this background check. How long is that background check going to take? Mm -hmm. And how do I know the background check is going to be conducted fairly and effectively? And what happens if I don't agree with the background check? And how, which line am I going to go on there? The longest line at the government building and then right. fill out this form in triplicate and now if I'm a gun control, a gun advocate, I'm thinking that the longer I'm not protecting my family or whatever it is, the purpose is that I wanted to have the gun. And so it come in some ways. Now there are, I guess, again, there are people that are just adamant that it's not, it's there should never be an impingement. But I think there's a core set of people that are worried about actually how the government operates and whether they can do it effectively. So where I actually wanted to pivot that to though was not so much the permitting but also the, the material way that I demonstrate my responsibility for my property is through the insuring of that property. If you come to my property and trip on the stairs, you have the right to sue me. Um, and you know, depending on how good the dinner was, you might. I have insurance because there's an expectation or an assumption that I should be able to be prepared for that Maintain a safe home. Exactly. Maintain a safe home. Maintain. And my insurance rate is a market statement about my relative performance as a homeowner. So when I go to the insurance market, they'll even do an inspection of my home to see like whether, you know, whether I actually, you know, do have, am I... Uh, Am I in within code? In fact, the reason why I'm going to get building permits is so that I can assess um, my relative performance against building code, which is an agreed on set of standards that then ensures the insurance company. Yeah. So. Well, and this is you're getting to the rub of the issue, right? Which is it's a, it's become a little bit of a dirty word in today's day and age, but it's a profile. 
they're building a profile of you and your home in order to assess how they're going to administer insurance. And so, and so it's similar with the, the, what, what you're doing to a judge who doesn't know this person is you're building a profile for what this person is and why they're potentially a danger to themselves or others. And that is potentially the bigger, the, the wider the aperture is for the type of profile that could get your gun taken away is the concern. And so we've got to get to a point but where But maybe one of the ways you address that concern is saying, I'm not going to turn it over to the government. I'm going to turn it over to these private providers of insurance. And if I'm a, a trained person who locks their gun up at night in a place with a locker, I have one of those ones with the, with the, the German gun with the code on it, my insurance will be very low and very cheap. That's interesting. But the government's coming in somewhere because the government has to require It's creating the market. It's creating the market. And one would argue that that is actually one of the fundamental principles. Now, nowhere in the Constitution does it say we're capitalist as a country, but we've we've imbued that as one of the ways we preserve freedom by actually having a market mechanism, a non-government mechanism for signaling people's rights, their responsibilities, and balancing those out. You can have a right to almost anything if you can pay for the responsibility of doing it. And I'm wondering if that's another way to get at this. I'm sure there's some myriad of reasons why that's horrible. Um, But, uh, uh, and and this is why it's very good that we have no place where people can go and and register their comments about Gov actually other than the poor Fed News, uh, uh, Fed Scoop website, which is now probably gonna be crashed by this episode. No, I'm I'm actually fairly proud of us for kind of um, finding the uh, the gov actually thread in the in the gun debate and and recognizing that there is a kind of part of the challenge of getting to a compromise that can actually put some some gun safety some more gun safety uh, regulations in place is the is the underlying concern about can the government carry it out effectively? But if I could say that I think the biggest concern with an issue like this an issue like um, voting access, um, many of the issues is that the debate is actually taken two polar positions and there aren't discussions about new ideas. There's no room for that because people are like, no, it's either my way or it's my way. Well, that's the thing that, that, that kind of bothers me that about, about the state of Congress today, which is I wish there could be more votes and more debate on this stuff. And, you know, it feels like to me that that's a healthy democracy is like we're seeing this stuff debated and up for vote on the floor and either it, it goes down or, or it gets passed or not but then it would introduce this structure by which to you know someone uh, someone on the on the gun uh, uh, rights advocate side can make the case about how messy this is and how easily it's going to be misimplemented and then someone on the gun control can come back and well not under my framework my framework click click creates very clear guidelines. And now you're having a real debate. And then maybe you're having testimony from Justice Department officials saying, how would you plan to implement this? What is the, you know, how, how are you going to protect both sides of the equation? And now we're having a real debate around, around how to actually affect safety regulations. And if you can't do it because you can't get enough members of Congress to feel, and the president, to feel comfortable that they've answered all these questions, and you go back to the drawing board and you try again. But what's not seeming to be happening is having 
this debate in in a, in a structured way within the government. And I wish I wish we could have that. Yeah, or or even some competition of ideas that could create the possibility for for people to cross uh, their traditional factional lines. And I use that word because that was what. George Washington was concerned that parties would be. Yeah. He said, if we have parties, then they'll create factions, and then they'll harden their positions, and they won't be able to compromise. And some innovation, like too, like this right. point about like the electronic signature on a gun mm -hmm. before it could work. You know, if you were if you were to bring home a gun, and they would say, "Would you like me to test your children's fingerprints?" Because if we see that fingerprint on the gun, we will not let it work, so that your your five year old or younger cannot cannot functionally use the gun. I'd be like, yeah, but sign me up for that technology. Yeah, and the, the argument is that the fear is then the government would somehow control or mandate that technology, and therefore it's a, it's a step into the direction. Like airbags. Yeah, of taking away, yeah. taking away. I mean, there there are people, um, and I, you know, I, I'm going to run the risk of breaking the Gov Actually rule and hinting at my view, but there's going to be shocking. They're, they're gonna be shocking. <laughs> there are people who, who who think that the government shouldn't tell you to wear a helmet when you ride a motorcycle, right? Yeah. And it's because that that's establishing some, you know, where does it stop once you tell me what I can't do? My view is, you should be able to ride a motorcycle without a helmet. You may need to carry a much higher insurance policy. Yeah. yeah. So that the rest of society doesn't then have to pay, you know, because there are costs associated with that freedom. And in where, where does the rest of society get paid back for the costs? Yeah. Well, it is an interesting dynamic in the country today that we have so many places where we are confronted with required safety regulations, seat belts, airbags, cameras in the back of our car so we don't, you know, run someone over. Uh, and and we've, we've come to accept those as, and as societal rate, norms. The rate per thousand of motor vehicle related deaths has dropped every year since the 60s as a result of that. Yeah. So, so that's the thing. We've traded, you know, we've, I don't know, we've traded the ability to drive in a car without airbags, which might be a form of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> but the question is, then, are there some things that are, that the founders thought were so important in terms of a broader sense of protecting some, some deeper sense of liberty that maybe, you know, they didn't, they didn't put airbags in there. Although some would argue that that might be a form of regulation that the federal government isn't entitled to do either. Well, let me offer, as we're, as we're getting to wrap yep. up, one idea on the slippery slope thing, which is really flawed, but I want to offer it, which is another constitutional amendment. In other words, constitutional amendments are very rare. Right. Once you get one in place, you know you're probably going to have that for 50 to 100 They're years. They're rare now. Well, they've, they've never been more rare in our history as a country than now. So here's, but here's, we let me, did it 27 times. I know, time. but let me play out the idea. Maybe it's not a good one. But so let's, I want to, I want to raise the stakes beyond safety regulations to things like the assault weapons ban, right? So it's the same thing, right? The assault weapons ban, I think the argument is, is like, okay, you, you ban assault weapons, what's next? You know? And so it's that slippery slope thing. But Actually, part of the argument, I heard it this morning, is define assault weapon. 
Well, I mean that you'd have it, you'd have it clarified in terms of what you know. It's a certain number and of create an of, entire market of, of people who know how to just get one shade left and one shade right of it. That's the, the well. That's, that's a point. good policy. That's a that's 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 a strong pushback. But I'm suggesting that if on the question of if 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 Congress works to uh, you know enact an assault weapons ban, then the notion would be um, well, what's next? But if you if you preserve the rights of gun owners short of assault ban uh, assault weapons in the Constitution, then you know that it's going to take you know at least from my vantage point, it's not going to be easy for Congress to to do that again. So maybe legislate through a constitutional amendment to reshape it, and then that will lock in whatever the new requirements for for a long period of time. At least debate it. I come back to that point. Maybe the constitutional amendment doesn't pass. But I think there's been enough um, uh, evidence of, of concern with, with, with where we are today that, that these are the types of debates that should happen. And if a constitutional amendment passed that preserved a ton of gun rights but limited a few, as, if I was a gun right advocate, I'd be like, well, that's, that's really good. I'm now locked in probably for 20, 30, 40 years, and Congress can't come back unless they do a constitutional amendment, which we know is really hard. Versus just doing it through legislation, which is which the fear is is that once you do that, you go down this road. Or, or like the assault weapons ban that actually did pass through legislation could get unpassed through legislation. Yeah, well, that, and then that's what happened. It, well, it, it lapsed under the right. Bush administration. Right. Anyway, my my bottom line, without you know, and I think you know probably the, the audience could probably guess on our on where we stand on things, you know, and and I'm not ashamed to say that I would like to see more safety. Uh, into the system, I and mean, it seems to me a pretty obvious policy outcome at this point, based on where we are. But but equally important, I think, is that the issue gets debated, that it gets dialed, and that that and that Congress and the government take up the issues so that we can sort out and figure out what is what is, what is preventing us from moving forward. Is it evidence? Is it implementation? Can we get these issues out and then have a more um, I don't know, thoughtful dialogue about where to land on this issue. But right now, I think there's a lot of frustration that, that we're not really having the type of dialogue and debate that we should have. And, and while I agree with you, I think it'd be great if we actually were in a place where we could reasonably have a conversation about amending the Constitution yeah. for a variety of reasons, because I do think it was designed to be a living document, and we've frozen it. Yeah. Um, and I, my thing is, I don't know how to. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. I don't know how. I, well, I don't know how to amend, a, and I don't that's know why how we to, need a constitutional scholar. To yeah, and I don't know how to change the laws, but I certainly would would right. would want the debate to happen, and I want to become a more informed citizen about the issue by having the debate play out, and that's what Congress should be doing. Bring the expert witnesses on, have that debate in the construct of how the government can play a role. And then let me as a citizen decide whether, you know, I'll write my congressman or call my congressman and tell them how I feel. But I don't feel like we've, we've put enough evidence on the table to debate on both sides of the issue. And, and my, my the, the inherent thing behind this idea of, uh, of, a, of a gun insurance regime would be, and maybe the answer is that we, the government admits that what it does is it creates a market 
and lets uh, the private sector and and capitalism I decide. Love your idea. Oh, I, well, I love this idea. You could be idea. the expert. Well, I'll I tell do you right love now. this idea, I, but I would love I would love people who actually know whether it would whether it passed constitutional muster. But but if this idea being that I could demonstrate that not only am I going to exercise this right, but I'm going to demonstrate that I've actually um, have the uh, financial and commercial responsibility covered so that if something horribly wrong happens with this with this very dangerous item that uh, that there's actually someone that someone can go and and get recompensed for all right so next episode we're going to have a constitutional law professor from harvard and someone from etna Yes. And we'll have the dialogue. Yeah. How does that sound? Well, we don't necessarily have to have the Yetna person. Maybe we just do the constitutional law person. Okay, very good. All right. All right. Until next time, Dan. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.